My name is Rex Howe, and I have the great joy of serving as the president of Tri-State Bible College, where the Appalachian Ministry Institute lives. And I want to welcome you to our 23-24 Impact Campaign. This is our fundraising campaign at Tri-State Bible College for the academic year and fiscal year. And I want to invite you into that campaign. Specifically, many of you have benefited from the Level Pass podcast or the Appalachian Ministry Conference, and those things can't exist without donors like you. Our conference is mostly donor-funded. Our podcast and staffing for the Appalachian Ministry Institute is donor-funded, and so we want to invite you into the joy of giving to the Appalachian Ministry Institute. It's one of two of our special projects in this giving year, and so if you want to give today to Tri-State Bible College for the Appalachian Ministry Institute, you can do that by visiting tsbc.edu forward slash give, and it will take you to our platform page. As soon as you scroll down, you'll see a box that says give to special projects, and that will take you to the opportunity to give to the Appalachian Ministry Institute. We can see this throughout the New Testament. We can see this throughout church history. And I believe we're seeing this today, that this desire of returning to the glory days is an unrealistic expectation on men when it requires a move of God. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. We're glad you've taken some time to join us. My name is Chris Weigel. The 1940s and 50s in a post-war America were good years. The United States had taken on some major geopolitical struggles with overwhelming success. The economy was booming, and communities and churches were growing. This was also the case in Appalachia. Church plants in many cases were at capacity. But time has taken its toll. The population figures of many Appalachian towns and cities have been in decline since the 1950s. Consequently, church attendance is shrinking and demographically older. On this Level Paths podcast, Unrealistic Expectations. As churches yearn to go back to the glory days, who gets to bear the burden of crowding the pews again? Here's Rex Howe. I am here with Dr. Matt Shamblin. And we, Matt, we have just an incredibly important topic to talk about today unrealistic expectations in ministry in Appalachia. And as I was preparing for our, our conversation today, I went back and read in 2 Corinthians a little bit. In chapter 6 and in chapter 11, Paul lists the affliction and challenges and wrapped up in that, Matt, had to be expectations of people. I mean, he doesn't specifically mention that, but just the incredible amount of pain and affliction that the apostle went through. And I think that we're going to hit some nerves today, both in congregations and uh, for those who are in ministry, as we talk about sort of the intensified nature of expectations and unrealistic expectations doing ministry in Appalachia. Yeah, Rex, you know, when you minister in a place that's been in decline for decades, 
whether it's in decline economically or in decline with its population. We have one of the oldest populations in the nation. Young people are in almost a point of evacuation from Appalachia. As those difficulties arise, so too is going to be the pressure for things in some ways to say the same. I have a friend of mine who was an accountant, and we were leading a ministry that was in a desperate situation, and we unwound the entirety of the budget, looked at multiple income sources, and uh, he made a statement. He said, Matt, when money's good, all the problems are atoned for, but when money's bad, all the problems rise to the top. Well, much could be said the same about a local church. When money's good, when attendance is good, then all the problems are atoned for. But then when money's bad, when the attendance is down, then all of those problems are going to be emphasized. And some are going to be problems that are actually not there. And so when we think about these unrealistic expectations in ministry, the first area that we find these unrealistic expectations is really is the church as a whole, the church as an entity in and of itself. One of the most critical and difficult areas in dealing with these expectations is this desire to return to the glory days. Populations down in Appalachia, some cities are half the size that they once were. And the people who remain as the young people who have exited are getting older. In fact, you and I live in the second oldest population in the nation, and right across the river is the oldest population in the nation. And so that means the congregations in Appalachia by nature are going to be older, and there's just a desire to return to the glory days. And every pastor has that pastor that led them to that time of the past that was glorious. That's when everything was built. That's when money was good. That's when the baptismal waters were constantly stirred. That's the guy who led us to the glory land. And now we have a desire to return to that. If we can kind of parse that out a little bit, the desire for baptisms, the desire for things being built, the desire for people being equipped, those are all biblical and timeless things, right? But it's oftentimes the return to the glory days is let's do it the exact same way that we did it back then with the expectation of the same results. Is that getting to it? Yeah, I think there is this desire, this idea that one man will make all the difference. And this is actually known as the great man theory. In leadership language, these men, in many cases, the churches were at their peak right after World War II. That's when schools were built. That's when cities grew. That's when a lot of houses were built. That's when families grew. And these men, when they came back from war, they emulated what they saw. They saw great men like Eisenhower and Patton. And so they emulated that. You can see that when you look back. Billy Graham, Jerry Falwell, W.A. Criswell, D. James Kennedy, on and on you go. These people were emulating what they saw. This one man makes all the decisions. But the truth of the matter is, when we look to the Bible, yes, clearly we have a man who is the pastor and he is leading. But He's not leading as a great man, but rather he's leading in community and he's coming alongside the church and it's not all dependent on him. 
that's really the first area that I think that we have to recognize. That the growth of a church, yes, comes as people are working, but the growth of a church ultimately comes miraculously. When we look to the New Testament, we see Mark writing about the miraculous growth of the kingdom. Listen to what he says here. Mark chapter 4 begins in verse 30. Listen to what he said. He said, this is the Lord speaking, and he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable should we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. There is a miraculous element in growing a church. We are to preach the word. We're to be faithful. But ultimately, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who grows a church. We know that there are faithful brothers out there who are serving, who are preaching, they're praying, they're being obedient to the Word of God, they're leading their congregations to do that, and yet they continue to see decline. The reality is the return to the glory days doesn't depend on a man. The return to the glory days completely depends on God. So the glory days are dependent on faithfulness to God and obedience to what he has said, and then a move of God that only he can do, not what a man can do. We can see this throughout the New Testament. We can see this throughout church history, and I believe we're seeing this today, that this desire of returning to the glory days is an unrealistic expectation on men when it requires a move of God. And the truth is, Matt, when we really peel back the veneer of the great man theory, what we really find are weak men. (laughs) I mean, that's just the truth. I mean, the writer of the gospel of Mark was a restored deserter of the faith. Paul became a weak man. Jesus died right? As I even think about the stories of my predecessors at the Bible college, in my eyes as a student, they were these huge, you know, giants. But as I've become an adult and I have a family and now I'm in the same position that they were in and I know more about the struggles that they encountered and the difficulties that they faced, without God, nothing happens. Without a move of God's spirit, listen, the church and the gospel work is a spiritual movement. It has to have the breath breathed into it so that it lives and flourishes or it will not happen. That's right. It's easy to let this be an excuse to do nothing. That's not what we're talking about at all. It is a call to faithfulness, but it's also a call to wait on the Lord and recognize unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor, labor in vain. And as we do that, our role is stewardship. That's really a lost concept today, I think, as we talk about unrealistic expectations. I feel like I used to hear things about stewardship all the time. And, you know, the role of a steward is to be faithful. That's his mission, to be faithful with those things with which he's been entrusted. And faithfulness isn't, it's not glamorous. It's labor intensive. It's the complete opposite of lazy. 
But the faithful steward has to wait for the Lord to cause the increase. That's right. You can set the table. You can put all the elements together, put all the pieces together and still see a declining church. It depends on a work of God. Why is stewardship difficult in an Appalachian context? Because Appalachian folks are, by nature, independent. They're independent in mindset. They're independent in action. They want to do it themselves. They want to work hard until the influx and the overwhelming influence of welfare. They have been uh, hard workers by nature, survivalists. And so this idea of stewardship that I'm supposed to remain faithful even as the world around me is collapsing goes contrary to Appalachia. But, you know, we can say that they are hard workers by nature, all these things. But the reality is there's a single word that's that's spoken of in the Bible about that. And that word's pride. There's a whole lot of pride in the folks in Appalachia. And so with that, there comes an expectation and a responsibility to submit to the work of God. These expectations, these unrealistic expectations of church, not only is a desire to return to the glory days, but there's also this idea that the pastor is to be everybody's everything, that when you are serving in the church, you're supposed to be not just the guy, especially in smaller churches, not just the guy who does all the maintenance, but you're supposed to preach the sermons. You're supposed to be at every hospital visit. You're supposed to be everybody's everything. And the truth of the matter is, Rex, that's ultimately unfaithful to who is really the Savior. It's ultimately unfaithful to how a church is to function. And that idea on its own can limit the health of a local church and ultimately the growth of a local church. And I'll I'll go ahead and say this as the president, since I'm not the pastor and I can't get in trouble for saying this. So what I want to point out, and those of us who have lived in an Appalachian context and attended Appalachian churches, we know this to be true. There is a documented history in Appalachia that the pastor is the man, that he does a lot, if not all of the work, and we want him to take us back to the glory days. We want to see the miraculous, and we want to not pay him a salary. Now, I can show you a document going back to the early 1800s where pastors, okay, understanding the poverty of the people around them, refused to take a salary. So it started as an element of pastoral care, not wanting to put a burden on the people more than they could bear. And that's still true for many churches. The pastors that I know are very sensitive to not wanting to put a burden on the people more than they can bear. But then you also have the other side where congregation may be placing too much of a burden on a pastor more than he and his family can bear, Matt. I know of churches that have large bank accounts and their pastor works multiple jobs just to make ends meet. There has to be a point where the pastor is freed enough to get in the Word so he can feed the sheep. Rex, it takes time. It takes time to prepare a message. It is unrealistic to believe that any pastor can stand in the pulpit unprepared and 
sufficiently feed the sheep. Now, there may be a time when a pastor stands in the pulpit and and an extremely rare occasion has to speak extemporaneously to address something going on, whether it be in the church or in the community. But the reality is the Great Commission is not just to reach lost people, but it's to disciple the nations. And Jesus Christ gave us the curriculum teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And so that means all 66 books, everything that we believe is Scripture has to be taught to that congregation. And unfortunately, it is biblical ignorance. And I mean that word in the purest sense, the lack of knowledge. It's biblical ignorance that has led to all of these unrealistic expectations. Because when you don't know the word, you're dependent on past experiences. And if those past experiences are unbiblical, you end up perpetuating unbiblical ideas. And ultimately, you place unbiblical burden, not just on the pastor, but you do damage to the church. Now, that's a hard concept to comprehend, but that's exactly what we see going on all around us. I hear every week, of pastors walking away from ministry, and the theme, it's almost as if they came together and decided what they were going to say, because the theme is, I can't do this anymore. Mm. Wow. Wow. You've nailed it, brother. I mean, these are important things to talk about, significant things for both churches and pastors to really open up their ears and to hear, because the future of the gospel mission in Appalachia is riding on churches being strong. And this is so important for us to talk about these expectations. Now, it's not just expectations from the church, but expectations from individuals. There's an idea that the pastor is going to be not just return us to the glory days, but he's also going to be that model of leadership, that idea of leadership that I have in my brain. This is one of the most difficult expectations to overcome because there's been pastors from the past that have made incredible impacts on their community through their work in the local church. And those ideas are the model for biblical ministry, when in reality, the model for biblical ministry comes from the New Testament, and the and that is an idea and an ideal that is dependent entirely on grace. You know, Rex, the Apostle Peter gave us three synonyms for this role of pastor. Episcopos, presbyteros, and poimen. These ideas, that presbyteros, the elder, he's the one who's going to set things in order. He's the one who's going to come along and organize and administrate the local church. The episcopos, he's going to he's going to be the one that provides that spiritual care. And that presbyteros, he's going to be the one who shepherds. That's that word, pastor. He's going to be the one that shepherds. I've heard it said this way, that the pastor is the physician of the soul. Well, if the pastor is the physician of the soul, then the prescription is going to come from the New Testament. We need more Bible, not less. And the reason that we don't have a taste for biblical preaching and teaching is because we've had so little of it from the past. We've become addicted to entertainment preaching and 
And so because of that, we've adopted unbiblical modes and models of leadership in the local church. Those three terms, so important. So the presbyteros, the elder, the episkopos, which our English translation is bishop. We don't like to use that one so often in Appalachia, do we, Matt? That's right. And then, then we also have Poimen, uh, the shepherd. Those are such important aspects of this role. And, and those should set the tone of the expectations. These are the biblical terms that are used. These are the functions associated with those terms. And then therefore, these are my expectations when really evaluating or considering the ministry of, of a pastor or really, you know, of a pastor in a local church. So that's really helpful. Well, there's also the idea that the pastor is going to be the savior of the church. The church mm-hmm. is in decline. And so we need someone who's going to come along and he's going to save the church. And I'll tell you, if it wasn't so serious, it would be humorous. When you look at some of the job descriptions that church search committees come up with, I saw one that was really this short, fill our church. You know, there's a desire here just to get as many people in as possible. And usually that desire is teamed with fill our church. Let's not change anything. We have to remember that there are unchanging elements of what takes place in the context of a local church. And those are found not from the past, but from the New Testament. You know, Rex, I often joke and say, I am really old-fashioned. I desire to go back to the good old days all the way to the first century and not to the 1950s. When we go all the way back to the first century, what we find is the promise of God. We see the pattern laid out in the New Testament on how the local church is to function and not one that's emulating what was found in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so that model is more about what we can do together as a result of our spiritual maturity through the leadership of the Holy Spirit than it is about what one person can lead us to do. You know, if we are a kingdom of priests, then the Holy Spirit moves and works in me just like he moves and works in you and works in our congregation, yet the pastor has the responsibility to lead that congregation. You know, I remember while I was working on my PhD, I had to go to a cultural experience that was different than my own. Well, living in Charleston, West Virginia, that was a very, very difficult thing to do. And so I ended up going to the synagogue on Shabbat, and they welcomed me, and I sat in the congregation and just observed. And he would call someone, the rabbi would call someone from the congregation, they would come up and they would read in Hebrew the text. And then the rabbi got up to read. And as he was reading, I noticed that he would read and then he would look around left to right, front to back before he would move on. And I had an opportunity to interview him later. And so I called him by name and I said, I noticed that you were looking around all the while you were reading. I said, what were you doing? He said, well, We believe that Judaism is much about community. As I was reading, I was also looking to make sure we were moving together, that I hadn't left anyone behind. Much like you would as you were if you were to lead music, you look at the eyes of the musicians, even as their eyes are planted into the music, to make sure that we move together. Well, that's 
an incredible illustration about the movement of a local church. It can't just be so agenda-driven that our community doesn't move together. We have to move together, and that's the leadership model. Remember, Pastor, God's not just called you to the church, but He's called that church to you. He's called you into family, and family is not just about one or two people, but family is about that really, maybe we could say it this way, a community of existence as you're doing life together. So we can't set the tempo so fast that no one's able to keep up, but we also can't drag it so far behind that we're not progressing forward as well. And so I would remind you, Pastor, you're not the savior of the local church. That job belongs to one person. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says this, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now listen, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Don't lead them to allegiance to you. Lead them to allegiance to your savior. You're not the savior. Jesus is the savior. That makes all the difference. Timely, timely word, Matt. The proper understanding of Scripture, whether we're talking about personal study or in the sermon or in Bible study, is a proper Christology, isn't it? Understanding really what the Scripture is talking about, pointing us to Jesus. Now, there's one more layer to this unrealistic expectations, and this has to do with the unrealistic expectations that the servant or the pastor has on himself, or if you're a lady in ministry somewhere, the expectations that you have on yourself. And so you've mentioned a number of times that we need to go back to the good old days. That is all the way back 2000 years to the New Testament to get our models for expectations and so forth. What does the New Testament have to tell us about ministry and the expectations we should have on ourselves? Well, if I were to put it in modern terms, the New New Testament paints a picture that you are in a line of other leaders and you are called to be faithful in your generation. Mm -hmm. You're to be faithful to your part. Some have been called to plant. Some have been called to water and some have been called to reap a harvest. You know, we really don't know where we fit in that. And all of us are there not because we've somehow earned a spot at the table, but we are there by grace. Several years ago, I was a candidate at a church. This church had been the lead church of the independent Baptist movement. I mean, this was the mother church. And to be honest with you, in a low day, I sent my resume as a joke believing that they would never give me the time of day. Lo and behold, I found out that I was one of three candidates to be the pastor of this church. And so they were inviting one candidate after another to come preach. And before I got to preach, they had called the second guy. Now, to put this into perspective for you, they had multiple sanctuaries on the campus many, many buildings on the campus. The large sanctuary would seat 10,000 people. The smaller sanctuary would seat about 4,500 people. 
And while driving through, after that pastor had been there, while driving through the community, I stopped and stood on the front porch of that smaller sanctuary, worship center, auditorium, whatever word you want to use. And inside they had a picture, and that picture that was as large as the entryway was that sanctuary, 4,000 plus people filled to the brim. And I remember standing there thinking, man, thank you, Lord, for not calling me to this church because the church had been in massively radical, steep decline, but yet was still trying to function as that super mega church that they had been decades and decades before. If you go to a church like that, you're expected to be the superstar. But you know, Rex, that's just not something from the past in certain locations, but social media has done that as well. That it's simply about filling a place of a superstar, but pastors, we have not been called to be superstars. We've been called to be faithful in our generation, recognizing that it is by God's grace that we are where we are. I've heard the story about Spurgeon. Young men would come to Spurgeon and he would ask, they would ask him how they could platform themselves to be in a large church. And he would ask them how large their church was where they served. And listen, that's a setup because he would he would respond to them, son, that will be more than enough on judgment day. God's not called us to be yeah. superstars. I love that, Matt, because we put that expectation on ourselves. We do. And some of it comes from comparing ourselves to others, other pastors, other ministers, which is never a healthy thing to do. We should always, as you've said so many times throughout our conversation, go back to the New Testament. What does God expect of you? And we're coming back to this word that, again, has come up many times in our conversation of grace. The pastor, the minister, the Christian worker needs as much grace as anyone else in the ministry, in the church. And for those who haven't done a deep dive on this word, it means undeserved favor. That's the bare bones definition of the word grace. We need to function in ministry, to have any success in ministry, we need the undeserved favor of our God. Because we are simply sinners who have been redeemed by amazing grace to serve in this church that Christ is building. That's exactly right, Rex. We are who we are by God's grace. I assure you, wherever we find ourselves, it's better than we deserve. And yet God uses us as we are faithful to his word, as we seek him and we are dependent on him. God uses us beyond what we could ever do on our own. But there is that flesh within us, that pride that rears its ugly head at every given opportunity to believe that we somehow have the magic, that we somehow have the ability, that it's all up to us and that we could bring that. I would say to you, as I've told many of the, the young men that I've had the privilege of mentoring, fight for humility. It doesn't come naturally and be killing that pride, be killing that sin of pride, because it will put you in a position for absolute failure, and it will destroy your soul. It's so tempting to get into the mechanism of the local church that you're not walking humbly with your God, and that is a responsibility that we have as followers of Christ. As we're leading others to follow Christ, we must first 
walk humbly with our God. And, you know, Rex, that's easy to lose that as we're trying to minister in the local church. Our culture gives us a picture of leadership that is false, but we live and swim in that, that image, don't we? I mean, it's, it's around us every day. It has to be such a discipline, Matt, to return to Scripture and ask again, Lord, what are you asking of me as, as your man, as your leader? And how is your grace sufficient for what you've entrusted to me? And how do I humbly walk in these responsibilities, these situations, these relationships with the money that you've entrusted to your church or ministry? How do I walk humbly with all of these things? Rex, it's a difficult time to serve in the pastorate, but God's grace is sufficient even for such a time as this. It's been a great conversation today. Let me encourage you to give us a thumbs up, follow the Level Paths podcast. Please share this. There are so many brothers and sisters out there that need to be encouraged. Their ministries need to be affirmed. And that's why the Level Paths podcast exists. That's why we do what we do through the Appalachian Ministry Institute. Please help us all out and uh, share this. That'd be uh, much appreciated. Amen. And uh, I hope as we talk through these things that the glory of God is coming into clear view for folks as those mountains and valleys and rough places are smoothed out. So as we observe the church in Appalachia and we see that it needs rejuvenation or reinvention or reignition or re-something, what do we do? The pattern has been to look back only 70 or 80 years to see how our predecessors did it. In the 1940s and 50s, one man called to a community to plant or serve in a church could drum up a congregation. That great man of God, as he was called, could almost single-handedly launch a ministry into the stratosphere. Today, however, things rarely work that way. And if the church wants to get back on track, it needs to look back nearly 2,000 years ago to the first century New Testament church. God calls folks to plant, to sow, and to reap. We must lay down our pride and seek God's direction. We cannot unrealistically expect one man to come in and resurrect our church. And pastors cannot unrealistically put that kind of pressure on themselves. If you're the pastor, find planters, sowers, and reapers. If you're a layperson, humble yourself and ask God how he would have you to serve. Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute exist as a resource. And no matter what need you may have, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamblin want you to reach out to them today. Rex Howe is the president of Tri-State Bible College. You can contact him by email at rex.howe at tsbc.edu. And you can reach out to Dr. Matt Shamblin at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email matt.shamblin at tsbc.edu. The Level Paths Podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.